Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. I also want to give a huge shout out and virtual hug to Patrick Muldowan, who has been just a fabulous partner in making sure I get all of this right, or at least mostly right, as I appreciate that my way of telling stories can be a bit trying for even the most sympathetic of researchers. Nevertheless, I am deeply indebted. Now for this episode, in addition to my own research for my books, most of the content comes from a number of key sources. These include Rory Mackay's 2018 Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife Lessons and Survival, George Warecki's recent books on both J.R. Diamond from 2019 and Douglas Pimlot, uh, which was just published in 2021, George Garland's 1989 Glimpses of Algonquin, Robert Bateman's 2015 autobiography, Life Sketches, various articles in the Best of the Raven newsletters, volumes 1 to 3, as well as those from 2010 to 2021 that are available online, and of course the Wildlife Research Station's official website, algonquinwrs.ca, and selected of their published research papers and abstracts. As you'll recall, in episode 29, I shared with you some of the human history of the early days of the Wildlife Research Station, including some biographical information about those early scientists that were part of an ecological awareness revolution that started in the 1930s. In the last episode, number 30, I introduced you to some of the amazing research that was first undertaken on a wide range of subjects, from Doug Davies and his blackfly studies to Roy Anderson and his mooseworm life cycle research, which was one, if not the first of its kind. I also talked about white-throat sparrows and ovenbird research, and also a wide variety and types of moose research. I also shared with you the beginnings of the now historic long-term study programs, including those on small mammals and turtles. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to a few more research efforts that have really interested me, and I hope they do the same for you. So here we go. To kick things off, let's begin with some wildlife trivia. The idea here is that at your next dinner party or Zoom work event, you can use any of the fun facts that I will share in various parts of this episode as conversation starters. But you then need to file a report on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page and share with us all what happened. I expect we'll generate a lot of amusing stories, or at least I hope so. By the way, if you want a little hand reference guide for your conversations so you don't have to memorize them all, reach out to me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com and I'll send you one. 
Did you know that in 2010, the number of squirrels on one particular Algonquin study site declined by over 50% over what was counted in 2009? This turned out to be because of the presence of a zoonotic bacteria in a number of species, including red squirrels and northern flying squirrels. This has led to experimental approaches using testosterone implants to assess the effects of testosterone on the immune system and parasite loads of red squirrels. It's often said that on the Canadian shield, black flies pollinate the sweet low bush blueberry because years with high black fly populations also tend to be years when there are large blueberry crops. Not true. There's no correlation between blueberry abundance and black fly population levels in the spring. Birds may alter their songs differently in response to different sources of noise, such as chorusing spring peepers, as well as to car noise, wind, and other bird vocalizations. Wolves in Algonquin Park experience low summer food availability and high pup mortality from starvation. In 2016, for the first time, a wolf was videotaped catching a fawn and then caching its carcass in a bog. This suggests that wetland habitats might not only be important den and rendezvous sites, but might also serve as necessary reserves for food for adults and pups. More on wolves in Algonquin in a future episode. So, on to our main conversation. Another interesting moose-related research project that is still going on today was kicked off in the early 1990s, almost by accident, by Mike Tudor, the Wildlife Research Station manager. He noticed one day that these tiny flies were buzzing around a discarded moose antler. Dr. Brooks assigned one of his students, Russell Bonjuriansky, to investigate. Not only were these flies a new species of fly, but they were also had quite an unusual life cycle. Now these flies are called antler flies, and they live their entire lives in and around discarded moose antlers. And individual flies even have defined territories. Bonjuriansky figured out how to paint numbers on their backs. Now I want you all to take a deep breath and think about that idea for a moment. This incredible scientist devised a way to paint an identifying number on the back of a fly. He then set up a miniature operating theater under a microscope, and in so doing he was able to watch these tiny flies engage in, according to Quinn, a, quote, furious communal orgy of fighting and copulation. Looking like they are boxing with their forelegs, the successful fight champions seeks the shade of the ground side of an antler, where he penetrates the female with a sex organ almost as long as his own body. What's really weird is if the antler is turned over, the two groups of flies, the fighters on one side and the love-making flies on the other, rearrange themselves so that again the fighters are on the top in the sunlight and the lovers below in the shaded area of the antler. The fly eggs are then laid on the top side in crevices in the antler bone, and the larvae, when they hatch, penetrate into the spongy interior of the antler to feed on the rotting organic matter. A year later, the larvae emerge and climb to the top of the antler tines, 
and jump off into the nearby leaf litter, where they hang out for a while and develop into the adult fly sometime later. As noted on the Wildlife Research Station website, all of these characteristics make the antler fly ideal for study, as individuals can be marked, tracked, and otherwise observed throughout their life cycle. Current work is investigating topics such as mating access, aging, and territory defense. Well, I'm sorry, I'm still having a hard time getting past the idea of painting numbers on the backs of flies, let alone studying their fighting and mating rituals. So my hat goes off, though, to Bondurianski and his fellow antlerfly scientists. What an amazing group of people. A more recent moose study sponsored by Trent University is aimed at understanding why there's a decline in distribution and abundance of moose presently occurring in some areas of their southern range in North America. Since January 2006, Brent Patterson has led a study of moose calves. 86 calves have been captured and fitted with radio collars and tracked. 44 of them are in Algonquin Park. Monitored weekly, approximately half, that is 24 out of 50, collared over the first few years, died before their first birthday. This was mostly due to predation by bears or wolves, with human hunting mortality seeming to be relatively low. In a few other cases, it was malnutrition or winter tick-related causes that killed them. Best guesses are that though there might have been moose back in the early days of the Algonquin area, there likely weren't many deer because the winters were so severe. That changed when loggers came through in the late 1800s. Taking down the big trees opened up the forests for regeneration that created the right kind of food source for deer. Although, according to Norm Quinn, in his 2002 book Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival, it is thought that there was a slight crash in the 1920s, deer populations expanded rapidly, and by the 1950s were everywhere, as old postcards of Highway 60 often show. I can remember as a child constantly seeing them on the highway when arriving and leaving the park. Estimates were that by the late 1950s there were as many as 12 deer for every 2.4 kilometers or one square mile of park area. Now I realize that that's nothing compared to current populations in many urban areas of Canada and in the northeastern USA. In Oak Bay, for example, in British Columbia, which is a suburb of Victoria, officials are experimenting with deer birth control methods to deal with their deer population explosion. Moose, on the other hand, were rarely seen, which I can also attest to as one summer in the mid-1960s, Dan Gibson, the nature filmmaker and nature sound recording artist, saw one near his cottage. As I mentioned in episode 30, Dan was trying to film the moose as it wandered down a nearby trail and had all of us rushing over to check it out. In addition, though not exactly comparable, a researcher studying beaver in the 1939-1940 time frame recorded that he'd seen 254 deer and only 19 moose whilst doing his research. The running hypothesis surmised that the deer die-off must have been due to the disappearance of open meadows as the forest aged and successful fire suppression efforts took hold. Much later, researchers realized that there might be another contributing factor, which might well have been the loss of hemlock stands that provided not only a source of quality winter browse, 
but also great protection in the winter for the deer. Well, it turns out that hemlock stands are a deer's best friend, as they are long-lived, some as long as 500 years, and make great shelters from deep snow. This I know to be a fact, as the cottage that I used to have on Canoe Lake happens to sit next to a lovely stand of hemlock. Hemlock trees, it seems, are great cover trees because of the shape of their needles. Being relatively flat at the crown, their needles hold the snow better than any other coniferous forest, according to Norm Quinn. The snow then melts directly into the air on sunny days and doesn't fall to the ground. However, by the 1980s, it became clear that hemlock not only were scarce, but they weren't regenerating in Algonquin Park for some reason. Well, one contributing factor for their scarcity, which I wasn't aware of, was that it was as a result of the building of the Toronto subway system in the 1960s. It turns out that hemlock logs don't rot when underground, so they became the, quote, go-to wood for subway construction. The primary source nearby for the needed hemlock was Algonquin Park, and as a result, much of the park's prime hemlock was taken to the detriment of moose and deer habitat, although this wasn't figured out till much, much later. Well, one wildlife research station researcher, Dan Vasilowskis, decided in 1992 to take on the challenge of trying to figure out what was going on with a hemlock. According to Norm Quinn, Vasilyowskis was an affable guy with an ever-present smile and piercing dark eyes. Though a little reticent and a bit eccentric, he opened up when engaged in talk of the mysterious hemlock enigma or other forest ecology topics. According to colleagues, Stan was a true field biologist and spent days roaming the hills and vales of the park. He was well known for getting his truck stuck in remote places and having to be rescued by others, whom even themselves would sometimes get stuck, especially in the spring. Known to many as Sherlock Hemlock, Stan found that by measuring hundreds of trees in various age groups, hemlocks were reproducing profusely, but these seedlings were not surviving. This, he surmised, was because though there were lots of middle-aged and old trees around, there were few young saplings likely those that would have been born around when the deer first started to proliferate. To test his theory, he transplanted and marked hundreds of seedlings, the right size, and discovered that yes, the moose were and still are in fact slowly eliminating hemlock from the park. Whether this is good or bad depends upon your perspective as lack of good winter cover and proper food is killing the deer, which in turn is helping moose not get the brainworm. It gets even more complicated when sediment cores are analyzed, as they suggest that hemlocks do go through periods of boom and bust, and are long-lived, but that in order to survive at all, there must be periods of time when there are few moose and deer. This would have enabled the hemlock to regenerate properly and build the stands that were wiped out in the 1960s. Now, with deer making a comeback, it'll be important to watch and see what happens to the hemlock. Another interesting observation, as those of you who will know who have listened to my episode number 20 about Gertrude Baskerville and her 35 years living alone in Algonquin Park, deer were Gertie's steady companions in the winter. She would often go out and cut cedar boughs for them to eat. 
On a canoe trip a few years ago, I noticed as we paddled through Little Otterslide Lake that all of the branches on the nearby cedar trees were the same length. It looked like a chainsaw had evenly cut the lower branches of every single cedar tree at a really odd height. I'm told that this was most likely the result of deer chomping while standing on lakeside snowbanks that must have been about the same height. I'm not sure it's actually true, but it is a great story. I have fixed in my mind this image of a herd of deer all munching away, who magically call it quits when they reach a certain height. A sort of natural sustainability effort, I suppose. Amphibian research, including frogs and salamanders, has occurred periodically since the mid-1980s. However, as of 2008, a continuous study of the salamander population at Bat Lake has been ongoing. It's been led by Glenn Tattershall from Brock University and later by Patrick Muldowan from the University of Toronto. Spotted salamanders have been a well-established breeding population at Bat Lake for some time. This is because it's, quote, a permanent water body devoid of fish predators with unique and stable environmental conditions such as its pH level. Because of all that, it serves as a stable reference source for monitoring the effects of environmental change on salamander populations. Every spring, for about two to four weeks, like clockwork, there's this migration to the lake that results in a huge number of fist-sized egg masses being laid, like over 1,000 in what is a pretty small lake. According to Norm Quinn, this annual invasion brings huge quantities of food energy into the lake, and is loved by all sorts of fish and other predators. Egg predators, that is. Salamanders are interesting because one rarely sees them as they prefer to live under rotting leaves and logs. But it turns out that in certain locations like the deciduous forests around Bat Lake, there are huge numbers of them, like 30,000 per hectare. They're pretty sensitive, though, to climate change. And as the spring temperatures are warming, earlier... Their first egg-laying dates of the season are also shifting earlier, at an average rate of about 0.88 days per year. In addition, they also seem to be getting skinnier, called by researchers a reduction in body condition. Since 2008, the Bat Lake Inventory of Spotted Salamanders, known as Bliss, uses interactive individual identification systems to monitor the population. They do this by capturing the salamanders in standard minnow traps. They are then measured, weighed, their toes are clipped for assigned capture status, and their pictures are taken. These pictures are then uploaded into an interactive database, and the salamanders each year that are captured can be compared to previous photos. Since 2008, 1,254 salamanders have been captured with a consistent recapture rate of between 19.4 to 22.2%. In this way, researchers can determine breeding life cycles and patterns and the impact of climate change on them, local pond use patterns, migration corridors, female reproductive output, and population sex ratios. A recent study in 2019 of salamander predators has shown that Algonquin pitcher plants might be responsible for 4 to 5% of early life cycle stage mortality of salamanders. To researchers' surprise, nearly 20% of the pitcher plants surveyed had captured baby salamanders. 
This suggests that these plants serve as a non-trivial source of mortality for salamanders, and salamanders serve as an appreciable seasonal nutrient pulse for pitcher plants. Canada Jay research in Algonquin Park began back in the 1960s. Canada Jays, also known as Grey Jays or Whiskey Jacks, are incredibly intelligent, inquisitive birds that love to investigate anything that moves. Quick learners, they're staples of campsites, campgrounds, bush camps, and even ski lines at ski resorts, of all places. The late Russell J. Rudder, a well-known Ontario naturalist, was working in the park and became intrigued by the birds. He decided to use a new technique called color banding to identify individual Canada jays and see what he could learn of the jays' then almost completely unknown ecology and nesting behavior. Every jay he and his students caught was given its own unique combination of colored plastic and standard aluminum bands and promptly released. From then on, each could be recognized as an individual from afar and given a name according to its color band combination. With the use of this one simple technique and countless hours of follow-up observations, of course, Russ was able to begin the long process of sorting out the basic biology of Canada jays. His banding idea, of course, is now an integral part of the modern study of birds. But he was the first, for example, to determine that Canada jays lived on permanent territories and that they lived for a very long time and that they tended to nest in the same general area year after year. Later, the Algonquin Canada Jay study was taken over by Dan Strickland. Strickland, known to most as the chief park naturalist for over 20 years, and mentioned in episode 27, played a major role in the park interpretive program evolution. He was also a passionate studier of Canada Jays, having completed his master's thesis studying them in Quebec. Jays, he discovered, nest in winter, much earlier than most other birds, and hide their nests relatively close to the ground, usually close to the trunks of thickly foliaged spruce and fir trees. In the past, their nests used to be hard to find, but Strickland was one of the first to notice that if you gave them, even by hand, nesting materials such as cotton balls or colored string, they would lead you right to their nests. He then could easily catch and ban the young birds. Over the years, Dan and his students have been able to ban birds in a broad swath of forest around Highway 60. Beginning in the 1970s and over the subsequent decades, thousands of encounters have been observed and recorded, which now forms a sort of social history of the birds. Canada jays, it turns out, are monogamous birds and stick together until one or the other dies. They also form three bird groups in the fall, usually with only one of the young and often male that chicks that they raise that year. This is even though they may have raised three to four young during that specific breeding season. Since Dan's retirement in 2000, he's been able to devote even more time to the Canada Jay study, now one of the longest-running studies of a marked population of vertebrates anywhere in the world. In partnership with Dr. Ryan Norris from the University of Guelph, the study of Canada Jays in Algonquin has led to many new and valuable insights into their ecology and behavior. These we'll talk about in a lot more detail in an upcoming episode. For now, I think it's time for another musical interlude. This is a piano composition from Sarah Spring called Across Long Lakes. Mm -hmm. 
Another interesting bird study has been that of yellow-bellied sapsuckers. Sapsuckers are a common bird in the hardwood and mixed wood forests of eastern Canada. They are what are called cavity nesters, which means that they like to create nests in snags or trees with heart rot. These cavities are often later used by other species of cavity dwellers. Sapsuckers have that name because they create holes through the bark of certain types of deciduous trees, called sapwell trees, in order to access the nutrient-rich sap. Now, as a sidebar, in 2010, researchers H. Kitching and D. Tozer saw, for the first time in Algonquin Park, martens feeding on sap from active sapwells. Studies of 165 birds and 300 nests over two years have shown that sap suckers love heart-rotted trees, such as beech, for nesting, and once they've had a successful nest, tend to stay in the same territory, although 40% of them switch trees. If heart-rotted trees, such as beech, aren't available, they also seem to be pretty good at selecting other trees that are easy to excavate. As Patrick Muldowen shared, the sapsucker is an ecosystem engineer, creating habitat used by other birds and mammals their drilling into trees for sap also provides food for dozens, if not hundreds, of other species, including insects, mammals, and lots of other birds. The problem that sap suckers have, though, is that in this softer wood, nest predation by black bears is much higher. Interestingly enough, sap suckers are fast learners, not like brook trout, whose challenges with loons I'll tell you about in a future episode on the research going on at the Harkness Laboratory for Fisheries. Sapsuckers, it seems, are able to switch territories to increase nesting success, a phenomenon not previously observed for this migrating bird species. Their nesting success and survivorship is highest in aspen and maple beech forests that haven't been logged for the past 60 years or more. This means that it's really important that when selection logging takes place, that there be proactive efforts to leave good nesting habitat rather than removing all of the trees that have heart rot, which is often done to improve stand composition for harvest. While we're on the topic of birds, another big issue in the world of birds and breeders in the late 1980s was the perceived decline of migrating songbirds. There were, of course, all kinds of theories proposed from a decline of winter habitat in South America due to the amount of rainforest logging going on down there, to the profusion of domestic cats to impacts on breeding grounds. Andrew Smith from the University of Toronto decided to take on this problem, and did so built on work that had been originally done in the mid-1950s by Norman D. Martin. Martin studied songbirds around the Wildlife Research Station. Smith was able to find Dr. Martin's original work and notes on his research methodology. And with the then-retired Dr. Martin's help, his memory, and notes of where the study plots were, Smith was able to, in the summers of 1995 and 1996, duplicate Martin's study. Smith's idea was that by redoing a study that had been done before the decline started, perhaps insights could be generated as to what the causes were. For example, if it could be shown that the breeding ground habitat hadn't substantially changed, yet the bird populations had declined, then maybe the cause was most likely due to things happening elsewhere, 
such as in the wintering grounds or along the bird's flight paths. What Smith discovered to his surprise was that though the forest had changed, in subtle ways that likely weren't discernible to the birds, the birds hadn't. In other words, of the 41 species of bird that Martin had originally observed that Smith was able to observe 43 years later, most had actually increased in numbers, and for the others there was only slight changes in abundance. The only exception was the oven bird, whose population had declined a bit. Smith's study suggested that migratory bird populations hadn't declined at all, at least at the turn of the 20th century. Of course, since then, climate change has wrecked havoc on some bird species, as have domestic cats. This we'll discuss in lots more detail in a future episode on research related to climate change and its impact on Algonquin Park. But the big deal here is, as Quinn noted, there is immense value in having a large protected area like Algonquin in which to do such research. One more interesting group of animals that have been studied in Algonquin Park has been the lowly beaver. Beaver populations have gone up and down a lot in the park. They became quite prolific after the park was first established because they were generally protected except for the occasional poacher. To see what I mean, take a look at the pictures of some magnificent beaver dams that Ernest Machado took in 1903 between Big Trout and Merchant Lakes that are on my website algonquinparkheritage.com. In the 1930s and 40s, for the same reason that deer populations expanded, the logging that opened up wide swaths of land to second growth also enabled beavers to thrive, as the young forest provided plenty of young aspen and birch. Alas, they declined in the 1970s and 80s, with one contributing factor being the lack of forest fires to create the large pastures of aspen near swamps and creeks and streams that they needed. Beaver, it should be noted, in addition to being a symbol for Canada, are also a keystone species, as their activities, such as the building of dams and houses, creates ponds that in turn create habitat for lots of other species. As noted by Norm Quinn, John Frail from the University of Guelph studied beaver in the late 1990s to try to understand if they had a proactive foraging strategy, or if they just ate whatever was around. What he and his colleague Noel Doncourt found out was that beaver tended to eat those saplings that were closest to home first. But the farther away they roamed, the bigger the twigs that they ate, as if they were consciously understanding that choosing larger food items the farther away from home they were was a better return on the energy invested. The two also wanted to figure out beaver food retention time. To do this, they had to get the beavers to eat these colored beads that they could then find in the beaver's poop. Alas, beaver didn't like eating the beads until one genius student devised a beaver sandwich, whereby the beads were immersed in a paste that was of interest to the beavers, wedged between two maple leaves. This the beavers loved, and the rest is history, as they discovered that beavers poop only once a day, and it's at night. Now, why this is important to know is not exactly clear. But what can I say? Sometimes the curiosity of researchers is amazing. Another beaver story comes from Richard Miller, whom you'll get to meet in one of the Harkness Fisheries Lab episodes. 
His was the story of a beaver dam that at one time existed at the top of a steep hill across the lake from the fisheries lab on Lake Abiango. Originally, the beavers had stopped up a tiny trickle of water many years before to create a modest dam and pond. As the beaver colony grew, the dam had been gradually enlarged, so that by 1936 it was half a mile long and about 15 feet high. The pond now covered perhaps 60 acres, and like all beaver ponds, the water was still, oily and almost black in color, and filled with gaunt, dead black spruce trees. Nearby were dense thickets of water-killed alders and willows, a sort of northern river look, I suppose. Now, for those unfamiliar, Northern River is artist Tom Thompson's famous swamp picture. And what Miller is describing looks a lot like what I imagine it to be. The pond itself was filled with tangled heaps of peeled, gnawed branches, blackened with age and slimy with aquatic growth. As Miller wrote, the place gave me a cold, haunting feeling. But as he went on to report, not long after that visit, there were several days in a row of heavy rains. During the fourth night of the rains, we were all awakened by the loud, roaring sound of a moving mass of water and the crackling and snapping of breaking trees and branches. In the morning, when we looked across the lake, the green of the hillside was broken by a straight black scar running from the hilltop down to the water's edge. The beaver dam had burst, and the escaping water had torn a 30-foot path to the lake. Needless to reiterate, but as noted by retired park biologist Norm Quinn, who I've mentioned a lot in this episode, the volume of research that has emerged from the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is astounding. And as Dr. Fall said in 1977, and I paraphrase, the Wildlife Research Station became known around the world very much for the research work in the park that went on there. From 1944 to 1983, the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station was under the operation of the Ontario Department of Lands and Forests, which later became the Ministry of Natural Resources. Amid budget cuts, that it was slated for shutdown in the early 1980s. By this time, academic biologists from several Ontario universities and their national and international colleagues had established research programs at the station. Not wanting their research programs to end abruptly, the biologists banded together to take ownership of the station. From 1983 to 2010, the station came under the rotational operation of different Ontario universities and was overseen by a volunteer board of directors. In 2010, the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station incorporated as a registered Canadian not-for-profit organization and is working on obtaining charitable status. It now exists as an independent entity and is operated by an external, volunteer board of directors. It isn't open to the public but does offer on- and off-site educational workshops, depending on the season, instructor availability, and of course demand. It's a way that the public can connect with the station and is staffed with one full-time manager and a small number of seasonal staff. Its core field season is May through early October, though it is operational to varying degrees at other times of the year. For example, some researchers and user groups use the facilities during the winter for workshops or academic student clubs. 
but this is a comparatively slow time. Throughout the spring and summer months, the station becomes a very busy place. It becomes the home away from home to a core of 15 to 20 undergraduates and graduate student biologists, usually from Ontario universities. Over the course of a typical year, as many as several hundred people, usually at the secondary school, college, and university level, will participate in rotational field courses, as the facility can only support about 50 or so people at a time. Some of the most interesting events include spring hikes to see the salamander migration and to learn frog calls, larval amphibian identification, wildlife tracks and signs, ethical nature photography, and of course an immersive wildlife research weekend in which participants participate in different wildlife research projects. Financially it is supported by a combination of user fees and donations. User fees are generated through the use of station facilities. Today's range of research runs the gamut from fundamental and curiosity-driven to theoretical and applied. Fundamental and curiosity-driven research covers topics such as the aging of trees and turtles, salamanders as prey for pitcher plants and the effects of parasites on hosts. Theoretical research involves the testing of evolutionary theory, trade-offs, in survival, in reproduction, and longevity across different organisms. Applied research supports park policy and decision-making about logging, wildlife management, and conservation. The Wildlife Research Station continues to bring to Algonquin Park international renown in all kinds of scientific circles. Today's topics are often broader when compared to historical investigations and are more likely to focus on species, themes and questions, or are systems-based. What's more interesting to me, though, is to note that in the past, the purpose and results of Algonquin Wildlife Research Station work wasn't actually actively communicated to the public. However, as noted on the Wildlife Research Station's website, increasingly it is crucial that the process and findings of scientific investigations be broadly shared. Science is a way of knowing that builds volumes of evidence to inform knowledge and decision-making. Science is a part of our everyday life, and the biological environmental sciences are relevant to everyone. Over the next five to ten years, the Wildlife Research Station is going to have to embark on a major fundraising activity for infrastructure renewal. Most of the infrastructure, as you know from episode 29, was built between 1947 and 1951. Time and the harsh climate has taken a toll on the modest buildings. Infrastructure renewal will ensure much-needed longevity and modernization of the facilities. Another interesting natural science effort is the iNaturalist program on iNaturalist.ca that is run by the Canadian Wildlife Federation, the Royal Ontario Museum, in conjunction with the iNaturalist.org from the California Academy of Sciences. The idea is for citizens to take a picture of any wild plant, animal, or fungus, and then the iNaturalist community and image recognition software will help them identify it. In addition, Participants can help out other naturalists by identifying their observations, and in so doing, every observation contributes to a growing record of the Earth's biodiversity. As of early 2021, the Algonquin version of this project 
has collected over 51,000 observations of 3,600 species. As a final note, it's time for one more batch of Algonquin Park wildlife fun facts to add to your dinner party or Zoom event list. Did you know that over the years there have been several programs to transplant animals from Algonquin Park to other North American locations? The two most well-known in the mid-80s involved first an introduction, or should I say reintroduction, of moose to Michigan. Moose had basically been wiped out in Michigan in the early 1900s. And in February of 1985, and again in the winter of 1987, a small army of biologists, park rangers, and veterinarians, supported by a crew of two helicopters, successfully airlifted 57 moose via ingeniously designed sling to Michigan. Though a few of the moose freaked out and had to be put down due to the stress, most made it there just fine, and though growth hasn't as been as good as was hoped due to deer-transmitted grainworm, the effort was deemed a success. Another involved the wildlife exchange program with Missouri. Wild turkeys were shipped to Ontario in return for a dozen otters. Norm Quinn's story of the collection of the otters and their shipment, or should I say driving, to Missouri is hysterical and is, can be found in his book, Algonquin Wildlife Lessons for Survival. The use of large, coarse, woody debris such as large timbers may be an effective and low-cost method to rehabilitate unused forest roads that will promote habitat connectivity for salamanders in targeted habitats, such as near wetlands or for other species of concern. In the spring of 1995, Steve Marshall from the University of Guelph collected a bunch of flies intending to document the level of biodiversity. To his surprise, he uncovered 600 types of flies. An amazing and joyful discovery. The guts of moose are stuffed with massive amounts of special bacteria that can dissolve and unlock the nutrients, including carbohydrates and lignans, that are locked up in woody cells. This is good to know because moose have to consume upwards of 50 pounds a day of these woody branches. In winter, if they're going to meet, they're on average 17,000 kilocalories of energy. That's seven times what's needed by a grown man. In the 1960s, white-throat sparrow recordings from birds across Canada showed a whistled song that always ended in a repeated triplet of notes. Well, it turns out that sometime between 1960 and 2000, sparrows west of the Rockies started singing double-ended songs. This song pattern appeared just east of the Rockies in the 2000s and since then has now spread across the country. Geolocator tracking mechanisms that biologists are using are suggesting that birds from western Canada are overwintering with birds from central Canada and sharing their song dialects. There's also research in 2015 that's suggesting that males respond more strongly to the doublet ending song. I hope you've enjoyed this series on the Wildlife Research Station. But to explain what it was really like, I thought I'd return to two stories that describe two sides of these amazing people and hopefully give you a good sense of their humanity. It comes from Robert Bateman in his autobiography, Life Sketches. 
Every Friday afternoon, on the slope leading down to the lake, in a grove of spruce trees, the grad students would take turns delivering progress reports on the research they were doing. A lectern had been set up there, and the budding scientists would outline their findings before their fellow students. Some of the audience members were senior biologists, and some were veterans who had served in the war. Their critique might go something like this. So, you're sampling rough grouse populations by counting droppings in a square meter every 66 feet, and you change directions every week. What makes you think that's a random sample? Not an attack, but a polite challenge meant to help the student improve his thinking. Kindness was not the issue. Malice was not the intent. It was all done with thoughtfulness and generosity of spirit. What an eye-opener this was, teaching me to welcome constructive criticism whenever it was offered. At the research station in the wilderness, I was encountering a new tribe, men in blue jeans and plaid shirts, who could sharpen an axe and find their way in the woods. They were rugged, but refined, intellectual, but also capable of zaniness. At lunch, we would have poetry readings, perhaps from the works of T.S. Eliot, or we'd read from Arthur Conan Dole's White Company, a somewhat light-hearted look at King Arthur in his round table. The more senior grad students took on the nobleman roles, while I, the most junior, was acting serf without pay. I realized then that unlike so many of the North Toronto tribe into which I'd been born, I would never work in an office. I hope you've enjoyed this series on the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station, its researchers, and its history. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. Don't forget that most of the books that I referenced can be found online or at the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores. And Sarah Springs Music can be found at sarahspringpiano.ca and of course all of the listening platforms like Spotify. Until next time.